But just as a brief introduction this morning before we really get into our text, I just want to express how wonderful it's been to be back at Edgefield this summer. Um, it's been refreshing just to um, be with you, refreshing physically, refreshing mentally, but especially refreshing physically as been able to join with you in the services here, to sing along with you, to hear you sing. It's been really sweet and uh, really grateful for all of you. Amanda and I are so grateful and so um, needy, of, uh, in need of your prayers as we uh, think about moving back to Turkey in the next um, month, month and a half. Um, we're excited, but there's a, a, just a, a lot there, so we really appreciate your prayers. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, the entire chapter we'll be looking at this morning. If um, you didn't bring a copy of the Bible with you, you can find one in the, um, the rack in the, in the seat in front of you. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word um, and you would like to take that one with you, please take that as a gift. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible and how it works, if you just want to open up to the front, there's a table of contents. There you can look down um, to the second section, the New Testament, and find the book of Acts, sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles, and you can look at, uh, you can find it there and then go to section 11, chapter 11, and that's where we'll be this morning. In 1779, in the uh, village of Hackleton, England, a young cobbler heard the gospel, believed it, repented of his sin, trusting Christ as the Savior. He... Um, Became very, uh, very excited about serving the Lord. And in a few years, he left the Church of England, the State Church of England, and joined a dissenting church, a Baptist, local Baptist congregation. Was baptized into that congregation by a Dr. J.C. Ryland. Um, this uh, young cobbler, while he would continued his craft as a as a cobbler, he uh, can, he uh, studied the scriptures uh, a great deal, and he began to teach himself uh, Greek and Hebrew. Eventually was called a pastor at church in a different village and um, began to uh, shepherd that flock there. At the same time, he read voraciously. He started getting into Jonathan Edwards' biography of his son-in-law, uh, David Brainerd, a man who went and served as a missionary to Native Americans uh, in, the, uh, in the 18th century. And then he also read other things like Captain James Cook, uh, Cook's uh, voyages around the world. But instead of just being captivated by the adventures that um, this captain went on, his, his mind and heart was open to people outside of his little village of England, outside of uh, his village in England, and outside of the country in which he grew up. And he began to be very concerned about the souls of these people that lived so far from the world. He began to craft maps out of leather and be, just to visualize in his mind what, where these people lived at. He, um, and then he began to pray publicly that God would use uh, someone to go and reach these, uh, these lost people, these millions of lost people that were around the world. As uh, a few years passed, and he, was, he decided that what would be really helpful is if local Baptist churches got together and s formed some sort of a cooperative organization that they could get together and, and through um, combining their means, send, uh, uh, send missionaries out to these people groups, to these countries that were far away. And so at a local minister's meeting, he stood up to begin to present this idea. And he started off with 
um, quoting Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, saying that the job of teaching all nations was not just reserved for the apostles, Jesus' followers at the time, but was a, 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 a job for churches until the end of the ages. And just as he said that, just as his, just the first sentence came out of his mouth, Dr. Ryland, the very man who baptized him, said, sit down, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. The status quo can be a very powerful thing. The inertia of the things that we have always thought, the things that we have always uh, done, uh, the things that um, we have always thought to be true can get in the way of seeing what really is true or what really is possible. It can limit our ability to see outside of the familiar, outside of the things that we've come, become accustomed to. And in this story, in this, uh, in this account of, of Dr. Island, he was, the, the thoughts and experiences and tradition that he is a part of really limited his ability to see beyond his, uh, his, his own parish. He couldn't exp expand his vision beyond those limits that he had from his tradition and experiences. This is a common experience with many people. I mean, we can just look at something as simple as the Disney movie Aladdin. You know, Aladdin was a street rat who would always be a street rat. We can find the same example throughout literature and throughout cinema. So it shouldn't surprise us then when we see the same trait exemplifying or being, um, being seen in churches. Because churches are just made up of people. People that are flawed. Um, and we're going to see this morning in our passage today that even the early church was not immune to this, um, to this lim uh, limitation of vision. Of, of vision a, limitating, a limitation of understanding of what God could do in the world. They had seen God do some amazing things just recently in their life. They, many of them have been personal witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. They had seen miracles performed. And yet, even though they had seen God do many things, because of experiences and because of tradition and because of, of a long history, their minds and hearts were not as open as they could have been to what God was just about to do. And we're going to see today how God changed that. Now, during this time, our time this morning, I'm going to refer often to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Now, if you're um, not a believer, not a Christian, or if you're a young Christian, maybe you're not familiar with uh, this idea, what we mean by this when we say the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit is not some mystical, impersonal force, nor is it just a, a synonym for a generic term for God's activity in the world. Rather, the Holy Spirit is part of something that we call, as Christians, the, tr the Trinity. The Trinity is made up, is, is, is uh, the Trinity, the teaching of Christianity is, and the Trinity is that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Father is, is the creator and the judge of all things. God the Son is, um, is he who came to the world as Jesus and lived, died, and rose again among us. And the Holy Spirit is God's presence that comes, is the person of God that comes and dwells with, within his, uh, his children, within, the, within uh, those who have believed on Jesus. When Jesus was here on earth, he said that the Father 
uh, he, that he would return to heaven and the Father would send the Spirit to be, uh, to be with them, to be with his followers and to be in them. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about the, the Holy Spirit, a lot more that can be said about the Trinity, but that gets us to a starting point this morning. Now, this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. As we read this chapter, just keep in mind, look for the Holy Spirit, look for the Spirit, and see how often we find him um, acting in this chapter. Acts chapter 11, verse 1, if you'll stand with me as we read God's word, we'll read all 30 verses. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely... I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uh, common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at that house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send the Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message to which you will, in, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching to the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all to remain faithful to the Lord, with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers uh, living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Over the last two weeks, we have been looking at 
Um, Acts chapter 10, it, which contains a narration of Peter's vision of his visit uh, with Cornelius and the conversation with him and sermon to him. And then Cornelius is in his household's um, accept, uh, acceptance of the gospel. Perhaps we were a little relieved when we came this morning and opened up the chapter 11. And, all right, we've moved past chapter 10. We've talked about Cornelius long enough. Um, that was great. Let's move on to something else. And then we get to chapter 11, and we find the exact same thing again. Peter repeats everything that we just read in, this, in, in the preceding chapter. And it won't be the last time that we run across it. You can find that Peter referring to the same experience in Acts chapter 16. So what's happening here? In a time when space on the parchment in a scroll was so, was so uh, precious, why did Luke, the, the one who wrote this, uh, the book of Acts, why would he spend two chapters devoted to repeating the same things that he just, that he just talked about? There, there were many really incredible things happening in the life of the church of that day. People being healed, God doing all kinds of amazing things. Why stop here? Why focus on this particular event? Although much of chapter 11 is a repetition of what we saw in chapter 10, um, the purpose of this chapter is to show uh, the reaction and how the, uh, the reaction of the church in Jerusalem and how they process this news. As Bill and Matt both spoke about in their sermons on chapter 10, Peter is eating with, eating with non-Jews and bringing them into the, baptizing them into the fellowship of God, into the family of God, and treating them as brothers was a very controversial decision in that day. And it was one that the, the, first, the first churches had a difficult time understanding. And so chapter 10 is describing how Peter began to process this and understand this and accept this. In chapter 11 is how the church, the church of Jerusalem and the churches of Judea, began to understand this event and how they processed it. Processed it. But why is that significant to us? Why do we need to be aware of how the church processed this? Well, in um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had told his followers that they would be witnesses to him, of him, of his death, burial, and resurrection um, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then finally to the ends of the earth. And to this point of the book of Acts, we have seen this happening. In Acts chapter uh, 2 and chapter 4 and 5, we've seen how thousands of Jews from Jerusalem have believed the gospel and been uh, baptized into the church. A little later, we find how many in the southern region of Palestine called Judea believed the gospel when they were out of the church. And then we have seen how uh, in Acts chapter 8, how that in Samaria, another region, the middle of Palestine, um, many uh, people, Samaritans, have believed and, uh, and been baptized in the church. Now, the Samaritans were not exactly full-blooded Jewish people, but if you squinted hard enough, you could see the connection there. But now, how were the people of Jerusalem going to get from just simply Jews believing to the ends of the earth where now we're talking about people who weren't Jews, people who were Gentiles would believe. If Jesus, was going, if Jesus' directions were going to be carried out, then it couldn't, and Christianity could not just be something that was good for one region or for one race. And this chapter 11 is the watershed moment in the history of the church when the gospel expands from being, simply being a regional movement 
to being an international intercultural wave that swept across the Roman Empire and left hundreds of churches in its wake. The subject of Bill's message was what God has made clean do not call, uh, do not call unclean. In other words, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, people who were not Jews could be brought into the household of God as peers with everyone else. By God's grace, we are all now part of one family, all on equal ground. And last week, Matt's theme was God shows no partiality. God invites people from all languages, cultures, economic statuses, educational backgrounds uh, to himself. And he will give them, without distinction, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will give this by the gospel. Now, just briefly, let me summarize what I mean by this. The message of the gospel is this, that... Even though God created man, man's creation or man's relationship with God has been broken by sin. And because his relationship with God has been broken by uh, man's relationship with God, the author of life has been broken by sin, that means that we have earned a punishment, humanity has earned a punishment for its sin, the punishment of death. But God loved humanity. And so we sent his own son, Jesus, into the world in, uh, to take on a body like our own, to experience a life like our own. And here on earth, he did many miraculous things, and he taught many wonderful sermons teaching us the ways of God. However, he also taught that he was going to die, and that, he was, um, and, uh, that his death was not going to be like anyone else's, but in, instead of just a, uh, a normal death, his death was going to be a sacrifice for sin. That he was going to take on the consequences of our sin. That through his death, he was going to take on the responsibility for, our, for, for, this, uh, for the sins of mankind. But he also taught that death itself would not continue its hold on him. That three days after he died, he would rise again. Well, just as Jesus predicted, he died. He was crucified, he was tried, crucified, and buried. But also, just as Jesus uh, had predicted, he rose from the dead three days later. And now, as a living king, as one who conquered sin and one who conquered death, he invites any who will repent and turn to him as Lord and Savior to come to him, and he will forgive their sins and give them eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel, and it is this message that we're learning, and that Peter was learning, the church was learning, that was good not just for Jewish people, but good for uh, humanity all across the world. Now, these ideas, when they took root in believers' hearts, as we're going to see in chapter 11, they provided the impetus for a missionary movement that pushed the gospel of Jesus to as far west as Spain as far east as the Caspian Sea and as far south as Ethiopia, just in the first century of the church. But the start was kind of rocky. There are two ideas that we're going to look at this morning to help us understand how the church transitioned from being so closed-minded and so, so, um, so introspective to the point where they were getting the gospel out to the entire world, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The first idea we're going to look at is how the Spirit enlarged the vision of the church. And then the second idea we're going to see is how the Spirit enabled individuals in the church. Those two main ideas we're going to look at this morning. As we enter chapter 11, Peter is uh, making his way to Jerusalem. But before he could get there, he could get there, 
the news of what, what had happened, the news of the things, the events that had transpired in Joppa when um, he had had, uh, when he had went and stayed in the home of Cornelius, when he went and had shared a meal with Cornelius and the other Romans, and when he baptized them and made them a part of the fellowship of God, that news had quickly ran past him and made, it, made its way to Jerusalem. And when he arrived, he was confronted by a group of, belie- a group of believers in the Jerusalem church who criticized him for going in and, ha- and eating a meal and baptizing these uncircumcised men. Now, two weeks ago, Bill explained the significance of why it was such a, such a big deal for Peter to be uh, eating with these uncircumcised men. And we, we, I'll, I'll refer you to that sermon if you need more information about that or weren't able to be here for that. But he, and he explains why that idea was so repugnant to the Jewish people. That suffice it to say that many Jewish, genuine Jewish believers were deeply offended by Peter's choice. They're called the circumcision party here. Um, and we don't know how many people there were, but they were at least a sizable mi- minority in the church. And we can pretty much guarantee that almost every member of that early church in Jerusalem and the churches in Judea were very, un- at least uncomfortable with Peter uh, treating these Gentile believers as, as, ear- as peers, as, as equals. Even without getting into the theology of it, just think of the Jewish history and how almost every non-Jewish uh, pers- uh, nation they knew took advantage of them. And they were victims of the Egyptians, the Persians, the, um, the Greeks, the Syrians, and now the Romans. They have been continu- continuously victims of non-Jewish people. So you can kind of understand their skepticism toward bringing these other non-Jewish races into the church. So how was this church that was made up of people who had a long, long history of of theological reasons and historical reasons to feel distant from and superior than the other nations, how were they going to get to the point where they were going to want to get to the gospel to the rest of the world? It's one thing to change an individual like Peter. It's another thing to change a church made up of thousands of individuals, to change them to have a heart that a, a large vision that includes uh, people beyond themselves. Well, Peter, when he's met with this chilly reception, he just explains what God had done. We won't go into all of the details because that's we've, we've talked about the last couple of weeks. I just want to call your attention to verses 15 through uh, 17. Peter gives two justifications for his acceptance of the Gentiles into the family of God. He, um, in treating them as, as brothers uh, and sisters in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, um, in the church. The first was the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the second was the words of Jesus. When the Romans believed on Jesus as Lord, the very presence of God came down and filled the hearts of these uncircumcised people. God didn't require them to, get, to go through the rituals of becoming Jewish people. He didn't require them to go make any ritual sacrifices. He didn't call them to come to the temple and, and do any kind of ceremony there. God indwelled these people as uncircumcised people. As Matt preached last week, God showed no partiality to whom he gave this gift. And in the same way that God had given Peter and the other apostles, the other believers, that gift on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, so he was giving the same gift of the Spirit to these Gentiles, uh, to these non-Jews, these Gentiles here. And this event reminded Peter of Jesus' words 
and uh, to his followers before, uh, before he returned to heaven. <coughs> you can find them in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. He said, Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the event was the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. So what Peter uh, was a witness to as he saw the Spirit of God come down on Cornelius and the, and, and the other believers was Jesus' stamp of approval on what had happened there. And if Jesus had approved it, then Peter, as he says right here, who is I that I could withstand what God was doing? Who is I that I could get in God's way? Peter knew that he had not manufactured this. This wasn't his idea. This was something that God had done. Peter could no more stop this movement of God than he could stop a bullet train by standing in front of it. This is something that God was doing. Well, when the, the believers in Jerusalem heard this, they were just flabbergasted. You look at, that, uh, you look at the uh, verse 18, it just says they, they were all silent after Peter finished his speech to them. <coughs> they um, had had 1,500 years where the only way to have a relationship with God was to be a part of the Jewish people, to, to uh, go through their rituals and be brought into uh, the, the Jewish liturgy. And now God was accepting a non-Jew just as he accepted a Jew. And to them, that was unconscionable. That was unheard of. Yeah, here they were. And to their credit, what did they do? How did they react? They gave glory to God and they said, well, then to the Gentiles too, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Their whole attitude, their heart to these others had been totally turned around. What changed them? What caused the eyes and their hearts to expand to include the non-Jews? It was a testimony of the work of the Spirit confirmed by the word of Scripture, by the words of Jesus. May God keep our vision of the church broad and outward focused. Perhaps, hopefully, we don't have the similar, similar biases, similar prejudices as the early church did. It's not unheard of. And it can very well be the case of any of us in here. Hopefully that's not the case. But at the same time, even though we may have hearts that are open, that we think, or minds that are open, we think, in practice, we can be denying that we believe it. A theology of God's impartiality is useless if it doesn't inspire us, inspire us to reach out to those who aren't like us. We can say amen to all the things that Matt said last week of God's impartiality, but if it doesn't inspire us to go and be among those people who aren't like us, to get the gospel to people that aren't like us, then what good has it done? The same thing, so what will keep us from being an insular community that's only concerned with the people that are among us, or only people that look like us, or only people that are from, and that have the same education that we do, or the same background that we do, it's the same thing that kept the minds and hearts open, that opened the hearts and minds of the people of Jerusalem, the people of, uh, in, the, in the church in Jerusalem. Testimonies of the work of the Spirit confirmed by Scripture. As we share the work of God that we see God doing to other people with among ourselves, that helps keep our minds and hearts open to understand that, hey, God really is doing something in the world. God is really doing something outside of these four walls. 
as we are faithful to share these testimonies with each other, we keep our church outward focused, always aware that God has granted repentance that leads to life to people from all people groups, from all languages, from all social statuses. Let's be faithful to not just keep, to not keep stories of how God is working to ourselves, to not just keep them in our own hearts, but to be sharing them with each other, not to show how great we are, but as a reminder that God actually does work. God is actually doing things in the world. Um, with this in mind, let me emphasize an opportunity for, all, for uh, us here at Edgefield that's coming up soon. In September, we're going to be starting Sunday night uh, meetings that, while including worship time and times of worship and times of prayer, will also include times of testimony. We're going to hear just these types of stories, just these types of events as people in our congregation get up and explain how God has been working uh, in people's lives um, to bring them to himself. So I want to encourage you to, to do your best to avail yourself of the opportunity to be a part of that so that your heart will be kept fresh of, uh, with, how, with news of how God is working in the world. So we see that God expanded the vision, expanded the, the outlook of the Jerusalem church. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is how God enabled the service of individual. He enabled individuals in the church. When we, when we begin to see how broad the invitation of the gospel is and how much God is at work in the world around us, it pushes us outside of our little circles. It changes the things that uh, we feel are important. It changes how we choose to live our lives. It changes the focus of our church. When the church in Jerusalem began to realize the, that the gospel is a message applicable to all nations, it led to a remarkable change in their actions. International missions began in full force in this chapter. In verses 19 through 30, we read an account of this first cross-cultural missionary endeavor. But this mission and these missionaries might look a little bit different from what you would expect. Now, ideally, missions work as a planned endeavor. You know, we, we find a part of the world we're interested in. We uh, research what people are in, live in that part of the world. We think about what access they've had to the gospel before. We think about how we can, uh, what language they speak and how we might be able to learn that. We put those strategies in place. We think about um, strategies and open doors for uh, how we can maybe explain the gospel in a meaningful way to those people that we're going to, et cetera. And then finally we send a team out to go work in that, in that area. Well, here in Acts 19 through 30, none of that happened. Is a really different circumstance. Uh, chapter 11, verse 19 is a continuation from earlier in the book in chapter 8, verse 1. If you recollect, there was a leader in the early church of Jerusalem called Stephen. And Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and power, it says. And um, he, one day he, preached the, he was preaching the gospel to a group of unbelievers in Jerusalem. And a number of, the, of, that, of that crowd got very upset with what he said. They dragged him outside of the city, and they stoned him until he died. In the wake of this persecution, in, in, in the wake of this martyrdom, the uh, religious leaders and the political leaders of the city began to level a great persecution against the, the believers of Jerusalem, of those who professed Jesus as Christ. And because of that, believers fled, and they fled into the countryside of Judea, they fled into the, the region of Samaria, 
and there they continued faithfully to preach the gospel. But some people fled north, and they went into the regions of modern-day Lebanon. They went into um, they went into Syria. They went into the island of Cyprus. And here, they too continued to faithfully share the gospel with those they met. Although the circumstances were anything but ideal, these faithful preachers continued to share the gospel wherever they went. God in his providence used the tragedy, used the discomfort of societal pressure to send his gospel throughout the, throughout the world to make it go further and further. The church father, father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we find that here, that in God's sovereignty, in God's providence, he sent forth his followers by persecution so that thousands and thousands and thousands of people would hear the gospel. Well, there's a group of these preachers who uh, sent into exile from the city of Jerusalem into Syria. They arrived and they, as I said, they began to preach the gospel. And they just went to the Jewish quarter of the city. There was a, good, a large Jewish diaspora throughout the Roman world. And so they went to the Jewish quarter of the city and they began to uh, proclaim this message that Jesus is, is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord. But there were a few daring individuals who decided that they wanted to take a risk. They decided they were going to share this gospel with people who weren't Jews in the city. Now we've moved beyond sharing the gospel to one or two uh, non-Jews in a Jewish city to proclaiming to many Jews, uh, many non-Jews in a, in a non-Jewish city. It's almost like they shrugged their shoulders, looked at each other and said, why not? Let's try. They did. And God blessed their work amazingly. Many of the people of Antioch believed. We don't know anything else about these men. We're never given their names. They're, uh, we don't know where they went after the, these events. All we know is that God used them to give the people the gospel to people with whom they were unfamiliar. God blessed their faith. The news of the work of God in the city moved quickly. It, uh, it went down to the city of Jerusalem. It made its way to the, to the church of Jerusalem. And the church there immediately sent someone to help organize the church, to, to help, um, help the, these new believers to grow in their knowledge of Jesus, to help them know what the first steps were of obedience to Christ. And the man they sent was Barnabas. This is the third time we've ran across Barnabas in the book of Acts. He was one that was known to be generous with his money and with his time and with his reputation. He was one that just loved investing in other people. He shows up and he begins to invest in these Gentile, believer, the Gentile believers. And he, it says there he was just rejoicing. He was so excited to see what God had done in these, in these people's lives. Um, and as he worked there, more people believed, and the work began to get too much for him, so he went to find Saul of Tarsus, this man who, was, uh, who, had been, uh, who had been converted recently. He went up to Tarsus and found Saul and brought him back down to, uh, to Syria to help him in this work in Antioch. This is what Barnabas did. He just invested his life in helping young Christians grow up. Wherever they were, whether they were new Christians and needed to learn the very first steps of what it means to be a Christian to someone like Saul who just needed to learn what it meant to be a leader to teach. Barnabas was there for it. He just wanted to help Christians grow wherever they were to whatever next step they needed to reach. So he and Barnabas spent about a year there in, in Antioch. At, the, at some point during this time, the Jerusalem church sent a group of prophets. These were inspired teachers to come to the, um, to, come to the city there. 
and um, they were uh, able to speak the word of God to people who didn't hold, who weren't able to hold the scripture in their hands. Sometimes they foretold the future events, as we see here, and um, like Agabus does here. But the thing to see here is that the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem continuing to invest in this young church, continuing to invest in this, in this group of baby Christians. But notice something else in this text. It is said of the evangelists that the, he, the hand of the Lord was, was with them. It's another way of saying the Holy Spirit made their work fruitful. You see of Barnabas, it says that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. You see of Agabus that he spoke by the Holy Spirit. We have, uh, we have read before that it was the Holy Spirit, God's presence, that confirmed that the, that, uh, the, uh, the Lord accepted non-Jewish believers. But in addition, the Holy Spirit enabled believers to serve the Lord effectively. The evangelists um, that we saw that, that came and first put the gospel in Antioch, Barnabas, Agabus, they may have been naturally gifted, or they might not have been. We, we don't know. What was important is that they were enabled by the Spirit to do the work of God. That was what made the difference for them. The Spirit had outfitted them for the task, for the task that God had given them. These men trusted God to give them what they needed, and God provided everything that they needed for this task. As we think about the beginning of this early church in Antioch, it challenges how we often have traditionally thought about missionaries and missions. We often think of missionaries uh, as a missionary as someone that will leave their job, will change their career, will give their lifetime to going to a region uh, to, uh, that has never heard the gospel, to speak the gospel to them, to start a church, to help, it, uh, to help teach those new believers, to help it grow, to establish leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And surely those kinds of full-time career missionaries are essential to the gospel going out uh, to the ends of the earth. But that's not the only role available in missions work. Look at the different individuals involved in this new church. You have people who went to an, unreached, uh, to an unreached region, and there just went and spread the gospel, just went and spoke the gospel. So you have people like those evangelists. You have people like Barnabas and Saul who went there at the church's infancy, infancy and helped them learn those, the, the, the fundamental foundational things about Christianity that they needed to learn. Then you have people like Agabus and the other prophets who went there after the church was somewhat established and help them grow and help them be trained and deeper in the things of God. There was lots to do, and the Jerusalem church uh, did its part to help this young church. They were not going to let this church go out on its own. So the role we should ask is what, or the question we should ask is what role will Edgefield Church have in carrying out our Lord Jesus' mission? This can look like a lot of different things. Maybe it looks like, like, um, Maybe you're a student or a teacher that has an interim summer or interim winter. Maybe that means you go for that time and go to a rural area of, of the states and, li and, live, among, uh, and live, uh, live there to encourage a small-town pastor who is struggling to teach his people. Maybe it's positioning your vacation time, not to go anywhere, but so that you can give a week or two weeks full-time service to something like what uh, Justin and Bonnie are doing among refugee, the refugee community here in Nashville. Maybe it's positioning your retirement so that one day you can leave this city, leave this country, and live in a place, uh, in a different city, in a different country, where you can invest mentoring in couples in a young church in a different part of the, in a different part of the world. 
It could even be strategically looking for a job in a city where there isn't a, a gospel witness and purposely moving there, not for a job's sake, but just so that Jesus could be made known in a place where he's not. There are obviously so many ways. People's opportunities are different. And there are so many ways that we can't get into, uh, that we can't even think about. We can't um, get into them all this morning. Can't exhaust them all. But the main idea, though, is that we at Edgefield Church know that God has opened the door of the gospel to people um, without distinction. And if this is the case, then we have a responsibility to make Jesus' name known to these people. So we should ask ourselves, how are we going to orient our lives so that we can uh, be involved in the work that God is doing uh, in the world around us? I know firsthand how uncomfortable that can be. Um, it certainly pushes, it's pushed me out of my comfort zone and out of, uh, and um, moving to a place and to a people that are so unfamiliar. When we think we're, and we think about trying to share the gospel with people with have a completely different background than us, or when we think about investing in young Christians and knowing that their relationship with God will depend upon how well we communicate to them, how well we help them learn the fundamental uh, uh, ideas of Christianity, it's really intimidating. And you may think, I really don't have the gift for that sort of thing. And you know what? You're not wrong. As you've heard, I've lived in Turkey for the last four and a half years. And um, there are very few days when I don't feel, wake up feeling like the day in front of me is too big for me. Culture is daunting and often just overwhelming. There are often difficulties relation, relationally in the church that you're trying to hash out among two cultures that you have no real background in. And so you're trying to figure all that out in a language that's not your own. Your head hurts just trying to think in Turkish. Um, seems like only half the time I really knew what was going on around me. It's really unsettling. Those of you who have Skyped with me over the last four and a half years know how much I've grumbled about it. But you know what? In that, in those really hard times, in those times, in those days when I feel useless, I've seen God do some pretty amazing things. Being able to, to share the Bible with someone who's never read a verse before in their lives, to share the gospel with someone who's never heard the name of Jesus as the Son of God before, of being a part of baptism, baptisms for first-generation Christians whose family back for families for generations untold have been followers of a different God entirely. Um, preaching through a translator to a group of young uh, Iranian refugee believers preaching without a translator in Turkish to my church in Samsun. Now, don't interpret this as, an, as a humble brag. I just got finished telling you how useless I feel every day. I've left too many conversations with Turks with, uh, with Turks with question marks popping outside of their heads, and I've locked myself out of my apartment too many times to think that I have any kind of adequacy in myself for this kind of work. If anything happens, it's only because God does it, and God has done it, and I can... I can tell to you, testify to you that God enables you for the task that he sends you out to do. The point is this, when we respond to God in faith and go to the nations, he enables us through his spirit to accomplish his work in the world. Remember the characters in our passage, the evangelists, Barnabas, Saul, the prophets, they were successful in the work only because the Holy Spirit enabled them to be. 
And just as God gave the spirit of the Gentiles without distinction, so he has given you his spirit without distinction. The same spirit that lived in Saul, later Paul, the same spirit that lives in Barnabas, the same spirit that was in the prophets and in, in the evangelists, is the same spirit that lives in you and will enable you for whatever task God has for you. Um, author, former pastor John Piper said something that I was really encouraged by. He said, God is not mainly looking for great gifts. He's looking for great faith that is willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then does, uh, does good. God may be calling you not because you have great gifts, but because he has taught you to trust him implicitly. I don't mean that there are no qualifications. I mean they may not be as insurmountable as you think. It's the same idea that Paul tells about in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. We have this treasure, the treasure of Jesus, in jars of clay to show that suppressing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, we're not saying all this. We're not saying that training is not necessary or that you shouldn't be aware of cultural sensitivity at the place that you're going. Of course, those things are essential. Those, that kind of training is available, and you should avail yourself of that. Take a, list, a, a learner's posture wherever you're going. But what I am saying is that don't let those things paralyze you. Don't let those things paralyze you into, into inactivity. Go in faith, trusting that God will give you what you need to accomplish his work in the world. Now quickly, just to finish up this morning, as we think about the, uh, the Jerusalem church's investment in the Antioch church, what fruits were there there that showed that God's spirit was working? There are three in our text. I'll just mention them quickly. One is the Antioch church's um, identity and the community became Christ. What does it say there that, that they were first called Christians in Antioch? They were no longer Greeks or Romans, they were no longer followers of this religion or that religion. They were known, this body of believers was known as Christian. This, these non-Jews had embraced this faith so much that the whole city took notice and Christ's name was made known throughout the city. Secondly, we see that the church, the Antioch church's concern for poor believers turned into radical generosity. Agabus predicted there'd be a famine in the, in, uh, throughout the, the, the Roman world. And the people of, of the, ch the church there in Antioch was very concerned about it. So they went to the city, they, they, they came together and they said, determined they would send a gift back to the Jerusalem church to help the poor believers that were there. Just a few years previous, the Jerusalem church would not, not even recognize Gentiles as part of their family. And now these Gentile believers sending money back to help support their home church. Because that's just what family does. Then finally we see, and we'll see this later on throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is that the church of Antioch became the basis through which the greatest missionary movement of, the, of, of, of all time began. And through them, all of Europe was reached with the gospel. In the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned the pastor who told William Carey to sit down. Just the man who uh, was... Um, the pastor who was so burdened for, mission, for missions was William Carey. Told him to sit down because God would convert the world without anyone's help. Thankfully, Carey didn't listen to him. He um, went on and through his persistence started this cooperative mission for getting missionaries out. And then he eventually himself went to India and spent 40 years there serving the Lord. In a sermon, he spoke to a group of ministers one day. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. 
Don't construe his words as an excuse for foolhardiness or as a reason to assume that God will support any idea that you happen to have. His statement, rather, is expression of faith, expression of faith in God that where God sends you, he will give you what you need to fulfill his, the task he's given you. God hasn't limited us, uh, isn't limited to us or reliant on us to get his work done in the world. However, uh, uh, however he has given the Edgefield Church, and he will give Edgefield Church a part in accomplishing this task. So let's not sit down and expect others to do the work for us, to do the work instead of us. Let us join in the work that God is already doing. What is your role in this? May our testimonies to each other of God's spirit working in our lives keep our minds and hearts enlarged to, remember, to always remember that, God's, uh, that the gospel is for all people everywhere. And then may we orient our lives to help us uh, in faith become a part of the work that God is doing around us and throughout this world, relying on him to enable us for this work. Would you pray with me that God would fulfill this work with Edgefield Church? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you that you have been patient with us, just as you were patient with the church of Jerusalem. Thank you for how you change our hearts, change our attitude, change our focus to go beyond our uh, day-to-day lives and help us uh, think about those, uh, uh, the, those around us who have never heard the gospel. Father, I pray that we would react in faith that you would keep our, our eyes open for people who aren't like us, who need to hear the gospel, whether that's here in Nashville or some other city in America or some other continent. And Father, would you enable us for this work? Father, we aren't sufficient for it. We know that. We admit that we're useless in this. So I pray that you would enable us by your spirit. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.